This is Leadership Letters, the podcast reflecting on and discussing all things leadership. Coming up... I think the most important thing is to stay in curiosity. I had been a leader who unconsciously saw need as negative because I didn't understand my own. It's an extraordinary letter and what a powerful exercise it would be for any leader. The more people start to lead with their differences, the game changes. Here's what I'm good at and I'm going to tell you. Hello, I'm Lizzie Bentley Bowers and welcome to Leadership Letters, the podcast reflecting on all things leadership. This podcast is a place for leaders to hear and share experiences and to talk about who and what has inspired and driven them and how they go about the work of being a leader. The way we do that is by hearing a letter that our guest has written to a leader, a letter to a real or imagined leader, maybe to someone from the past, the present or the future. Their letter might be to someone they know or maybe to someone they've never met, maybe to someone they have led or maybe to someone they were led by. Whoever they write to, our guest's letters give us a rich source of insight and inspiration and a jumping off point for some leadership conversation that we hope will be useful to you as the leaders listening in. My guest for this episode is the Director of Goldmind Neurodiversity. Previously a senior leader in secondary education, she's now an ADHD coach, a coach trainer, and is someone who through her business Goldmind, I have had the privilege of learning from during her neurodiversity and coaching training, and have also had the privilege of being coached by. That's an experience that has been, and continues to be, life-changing for me. Her recent TEDx talk, Finding My Gold, already has six and a half thousand views, and I have a feeling that number will be growing and growing. As I mentioned at the end of the recent Towards Leadership podcast, our sister podcast, where we take a deeper dive into how we develop, increase awareness and increase skill in relation to the topics we cover here in Leadership Letters. The topic of late diagnosis of ADHD is one that is particularly pertinent for me at the moment, having been diagnosed earlier this year. So, as well as being important to me personally, my guest will, I know, bring enormous insight to you, the leaders listening to this. I'm delighted to welcome Katie Friedman to the Leadership Letters podcast. Welcome, Katie, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. That was the most beautiful, loveliest, researched intro. Most people go, can you just do it yourself? (laughs) And it's really flattering to be introduced, actually, and also a relief because I never remember who I am or what I'm supposed to say. (laughs) Well, we know who you are and we are doing things a little differently today, Katie, and that you're going to launch straight into your letter, which is great. So I'm going to ask you to begin by telling us who you've written to and why. Well, I, I've chosen to write to myself as a leader and um, I was going to say to myself as the leader I was, but actually it's to myself as the leader I am. So I hope that doesn't sound completely egocentric, but that's that's who I'm writing to. Fabulous. To me as a leader, when I was an assistant principal, one of my hardest days on duty was having to permanently exclude a child called Brandon for stealing a penknife from Art and threatening another child. As he calmed down in the dining hall, he told me the other child had called him stupid and he was actually scared that he might be because he still couldn't read and he didn't know how he was going to get through his GCSEs. Brandon was in the middle of year 11. 
I went from wondering how, by year 11, he had been so unclear on the rules, to wondering how we as a school had been so unclear on his needs after five years in our care. What narratives had we constructed for this child? Disengaged? In with the wrong crowd? Naughty? Stupid? Was it because Brandon had English as a second language? Had we lowered our expectations? Brandon's inner world of not knowing that his brain was wired differently led him to thinking he was stupid and destructive behaviours. I eventually got our outstanding Senko, and she was outstanding, to diagnose him with dyslexia a couple of months before he took his exams. What I didn't know at the time was that Brandon's experience of not understanding his differences mirrored my own. I didn't get kicked out for wielding a Stanley knife. I burnt out from a deputy head acting her teacher role. I eventually retrained as a coach and got curious about neurodiversity. I was finally diagnosed with ADHD, age 40. When I look back at my school leadership days, I wish I had understood myself so that I could be deliberate and authentic. I was cut off from myself and ultimately this meant I couldn't see others or lead with the emotional intelligence I so admired in other leaders. Without understanding myself, the judgment of myself and others was relentless. Like the hare in the famous parable, I was once described as wanting tomorrow, yesterday. At the time, I was leading a school out of special measures, so this observation felt justified. The students deserve better, and I used a pace-setting style of leadership. I used to think the rushing was learnt from my mum, who still hurtles through life, constantly striving to make a positive impact and burning out periodically. Her tireless energy means she will always go the extra mile, and her moral code has, until recently, guided my ship. I'm a big picture thinker with a passion that can ignite others and with what one colleague described as a healthy disrespect for comfort zones. My parents had not fared well working in organisations, so I was determined to do things differently. I chose to play the game and be an agent of change from within an organisation in order to have more impact. I became an impact junkie. Until a few years ago, I had no idea how much I was operating from a place of never enough. As a teacher, I was into tough love, excellence and getting students to risk trying. My approach in middle leadership was to do whatever it takes to improve standards. And I had little empathy for anyone who did not share this drive. As a senior leader, I was advised by my peers to listen to myself more, trust my intuition and reflect on my thoughts. Why did I find this so hard? In my teenage years, after my dad left, my mum became my hero. She was anxious and depressed, although we didn't have those labels back then. And I was her confidant. Losing touch with my own feelings as I became a voyeur to my parents' dramas. 
Emotion would then bubble up in me like a volcano, usually as a source of frustration. I approached having children like I approached most things in a rush towards a vision. Within a short space of time from returning from, to work from my first child, I was pregnant with a second. I found conforming to the motherland of mat leave and sitting around discussing nappies and breastfeeding excruciating, so I cooked up projects to get me out of there. I threw my mental energy on the first maternity into finishing my dissertation and setting up a business with a fellow entrepreneurial mum in the second. Staying at home with children past the one-year mat leave mark was not an option for me as it felt like my speedy brain would die. When my husband had a go at being a stay-at-home dad with our third, he didn't last long either and I actually found his experience hugely validating. This second maternity leave coincided with a house move. My mum's moving up north and postnatal depression. My mum's perspective was my truth and her presence soothed me. I didn't realise I was bereft when she left. I had moved to my hometown to be near her. And when I had a family, because I'd spent time in Latin America and Spain picking up notions that it takes a tribe to raise a child, but my tribe was boomer and freedom from family ties and obligations felt in early life had been a theme for both of my parents for most of their lives. In putting my mum on a pedestal, I couldn't see her or me clearly. I was adhering to black and white thinking of perfectionism, and unsurprisingly, I found myself lacking. Both parenting and leadership need patience and being, and I wasn't practised in either. Being is much harder compared to the tick list of doing, especially if your brain is wired for dopamine. I had this nagging sense that parenting and leadership required similar skills, but felt more able to perform at work, where there was a greater lure of external validation, despite the building fatigue of sleepless nights with small children. At home, the mask would fall off when neither my kids nor I could keep up with my crazy schedule or standards, and the volcanic temper would erupt, as I had experienced my mother in early childhood. Her voice bubbled up in me like lava, revealing the anger of our overwhelmed inner child. I didn't realise it was my mother's voice at the time, so I internalised guilt and my inner critic reigned. This numbed a lot of the joy of parenting, so I poured all my resources into the rescuing of a school I loved from special measures. I learnt a lot here about the process of recovery and of speaking truth to power. But the spiral of guilt in parenting felt like Groundhog Day and was slowly draining my magic. Spending my third maternity leave in Spain with my family gave me a glimpse of what life could be like without the pressure of constant striving. My brain was lit like a Christmas tree learning languages every day whilst engaging in everyday Spanish life with two children attending Spanish school. The value of being quickly got lost, though, when I returned to work. My leadership days were a period of real growth. I brought an energy of real 
of innovation. I had an anything is possible energy and it really felt like the only way was up. I was able to think at a really strategic level and was able to line manage whole swathes of the school. I knew just enough about learning to have the gravitas in a lot of subjects and I enjoyed shifting mindsets on expectations and literacy. I chased a promotion in a new school riddled with challenges and was overriding my intuition, something I was making a habit of, that was warning me against this job. When my secure raft of childcare dissolved, as my husband relocated his work to London for most of the week, I realised I may be in trouble. My job kept expanding with SLT members going off with stress, including the head teacher and head of safeguarding. My anxiety built and I stopped sleeping. I burnt out at Christmas and had to take time off and eventually resigned. This was the start of a slow, tortoise-paced, therapeutic voyage to understand me. I learned how to ground myself in the moment. I retrained as a coach and learned how to listen deeply. I returned to school leadership on my own terms with an amazing set of coaching skills and a more considered style of leadership. Then the pandemic hit and by the summer of 2020, I realised I was done and I had a wake for my career with a dear friend. I discovered that I was neurodistinct in the second lockdown while attempting to establish a coaching business whilst homeschooling my three kids. I quickly realised they were neurodistinct too. So despite line managing Senkos, I had never seen myself as Send. As a girl who went to school in the 80s and 90s, neither had anybody else. No one, including me, had spotted my son's neurodiversity in primary school. And it was only when I realized, having learned a lot about neurodiversity, that I I saw it in them. Knowledge until recently has relied heavily on problematic stereotypes of naughty white boys bouncing off the walls or Sheldon characters. And previously we had Rain Man. These were the only ones with a diagnosis and this has perpetuated a very narrow lens. But not seeing neurodiversity or having the badge doesn't mean it doesn't exist and that our needs aren't different. The alternative to understanding yourself and your differences is judgment, other people's and our own. If we are different and don't understand our difference, we are often framed or frame ourselves in the negative. This can have a massively detrimental effect on our mental health and confidence. I had been a leader who unconsciously saw need as negative because I didn't understand my own. This meant I was not empathetic to the emotional needs of those I line managed sometimes and definitely meant I ignored my needs, which contributed to my burnout. Finding out about my brain shot me to the core of who I really was, past who I was scared of, and helped me to own the story of who I had been trying to be in school, in work. And it gave me the authenticity I had not previously had to be a coach. 
Slowly, self-compassion became more effortless and the more I understood my needs and experiences through this lens. I am learning to feel and honour my emotions, hear my needs and intuit my own decisions. There is finally congruence between work and my home life and when there isn't, I understand why and the judgment dissolves. I have a much clearer appreciation of both my strengths and the strengths of those around me. I am learning to question the expectations I have of myself and understand my needs, limits and boundaries. I now see that when I'm dysregulated, it is a chance to model to my children self-compassion and reparation. I am learning to ask for help rather than assume it is me that always needs to improve. I have realised how claustrophobic and limiting the hero worship of my mum was. It encouraged a deficit outlook, which in the long term didn't serve anyone. My identity was lost in hers. I realised that until I learnt about me, I replicated this hero worship with others too. I now realise that the answer to my parents' frustration and dissatisfaction of being outside the box was not because they needed to assimilate and change from the inside like I had tried to. Instead, for all of us who are wired differently, we need to be empowered to understand and lead with an acceptance and appreciation of how we are different. In this way, the boxes will change and benefit everyone. I now feel very appreciative of my previous 15 years in leadership and education. I have so much life experience and knowledge, which has helped me as a coach to a whole cross-section of women with ADHD now. I love being a catalyst in their journeys of self-recovery and discovery so that they can be themselves on purpose and bring their gifts into full view of the world. I'm still finding my way as a leader and probably always will. But it's my way and increasingly it's an adventure I love being on. I love you always, Katie, the leader. I was doing so well, but the end got me. <laughs> Gosh, there's so much I want to talk to you about, Katie, but how was it for you to write that? I ended up taking bits of writing from the last two or three years and weaving it all together. I guess the thing I really reflect on is how nuanced it is. You know, that first piece of writing was all about, it's all from my mother. <laughs> and um, that was about three years ago. And it's just so interesting how the narrative changed with neurodiversity. And then it was almost like I swung from one side to the other and now it's so nuanced and I'm able to hold lots of different narratives. It's an extraordinary letter and what a powerful exercise it would be for any leader to write a letter to themselves yeah. about their leadership journey. Well, I'm just reflecting that I was asked to sort of speak about my journey, my narrative when I was in school once and I was so stuck. Mm. Like I really didn't have a hold on that journey on any of it and um, it was almost painful you know it was like big gray areas in my head that I just had nothing on and for someone who's so verbose normally <laughs> it, it, it felt very odd to try and 
cobble something together at speed. So I do think it can be really empowering, but I think so many people need to have the luxury of time. Mm. Yes, because you potentially are pulling on some threads there. Yeah, or or realising how in the dark you are. Mm. There's something you said at the end of your letter about leading with acceptance of self and others and about how when the boxes change, there's benefit for everyone. And I, I think there's something about the reassurance that often people need, leaders need, that if I do something differently to account for neurodivergence, for example, what happens to me? Yeah, that's a really good point. Two things then. Um, the first one is that neuroinclusion, like any inclusion, benefits everyone in the end. You know, we tap into our humanity um, like that classic thing when you make a ramp on a pavement, it doesn't just benefit the person in a wheelchair, it benefits the person with a buggy, it benefits the person with a wheelie bag. You know, everybody benefits in the end. And I think the other piece that you're talking about is the needs piece, which is that the leader who sort of opens the door to all this difference and nuance might worry that they get sort of overwhelmed or lost by all this detail and nuance and actually could we all just be the same because I need people to be competent stoics and leave their needs at the door (laughs) and I say to leaders now when they come and talk to me I had somebody come and talk to me about um, a neurodivergent uh, employee that was really winding them up and I said where are your needs in this you're rescuing. You have to say how you feel about this behavior, because if you don't, then you are dehumanizing that person and disempowering. We all have different behaviors and there might be reasons for it, but my goodness, we need feedback and it needs to be kind, not nice. Nice just pushes paper around the table. Kind is human and with heart. And kind isn't always easy. No. You said something in your letter around, and I thought this was a courageous thing to observe in yourself and to share, because my guess is this is going to resonate with a lot of people who will have their own version of it. You talked about how you had seen need as negative. What can you share about what helps to spot that? Yeah. I mean, I think, like you said, it's a really hard one to own. Mm. Um, People have realized in trainings I run, leaders who are in action, and I have so much respect for their hustle because it's all very well realizing all this stuff after the event, which is what I'm doing. (laughs) But, you know, to have people making these realizations in action is like, wow. Um, And so... And I, and also to say, I don't think you have to, it's, it's not always about neurodiversity to see needs as negative. I think mm-hmm. so many of us were um, raised to uh, put our needs in a box somewhere and our emotions in a box. I mean, you know, if you had the war generation trickled down, then we all had that impact. I think that there is still a real misconception that it's selfish. Um, to get your needs met first, particularly parents. Oh, I must do this first for them and then me. And it's absolutely the other way around. It really is. You have to lead from the empowered place, not the I give to everything and everyone. 
I find it very easy now to realize if someone's treating me in a certain way from a place of being incredibly overwhelmed and how it actually really hurts. It really hurts to experience someone who is overwhelmed and snappy and, um, you know, not considerate and lacking in empathy. And and yet they're, they think they're operating from a place of, you know, I just do everything for everyone else. And, and actually, by not putting your oxygen mask on, it's, it's grim <laughs> for everyone. And it's definitely grim for you. I mean, one of the things that we share as well as a late ADHD diagnosis is both having been senior leaders in, in schools in the past. Because mm. the story we tell ourselves, because I guess we have to, right? Because we want to see ourselves as good people doing the right things. So the story we tell ourselves is, that it is about giving, which in one sense it is. But if we've lost sight of ourselves in that, it tips into something else. And it's particularly challenging for women because, you know, we have this unspoken second job. <laughs> you know all of the care and I mean I'm not saying all and I know there's lots of families who are much more evenly split but there are still aspects of the domestic life which are just not owned and and, and we were raised to be in that way as well so yeah the the, the human giver syndrome is um is a real thing and, and I just want to give a little like example that was just really sad actually um on my leaving speech after 10 years in that particular school, burst into tears, snotting and sobbing. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't pretty. And as I came sort of off the, the bit where I was talking, I heard this um, middle leader say, oh, so she does have emotions then. <laughs> and I just was like, oh. And I just realized how masked up I had been and how much more powerful it would have been if I had shown my humanity and vulnerability if I'd known how to mm. and there was something else you talked about there's a connection here for me around the the more do more do more do more do more that to use your phrase when we're masked up whether that's around neurodivergence or anything else mm -hmm. when we're masked up it kind of it kind of feeds those masks because we this is how we've presented ourselves. So this is what we've got to maintain. So two wonderings on that. What can we do in the moment if we catch ourselves, if we're lucky enough to catch ourselves? But I'm also curious about what your take is on culture shift that we need to catch and avoid that creep of expectation of ourselves and others. First and foremost, which no one really talks about, I really think that a really radical act is to focus on your strengths and be really clear about them. Why is it radical? Because it's actually counterculture. It's counter British. Here's what I'm good at. And I'm going to tell you it's counter um, feminized, you know, Ooh, you must, you know, be humble and basically in the dark and, you know, fairly quiet. No. <laughs> Um, be proactively clear on what you're good at and stop waiting for other people. Because what the other thing you said there is that it's it's so addictive to be this human giver because you get praised for it. Oh, thank you. So, oh, you're so good because you do everything for me. We get praised for rescuing, which is really, really problematic and particularly problematic in, you know, send if you have actual labeled needs, 
because it's just reinforcing this kind of broken narrative um, and it's not coming from an empowered place. So I think that's one thing we can all do at a very personal level and at a structural level. I think it's happening already, to be honest. I think, you know, younger generations are far more boundaried. Mm. They're far more, um, they're not sold on the long-term job or the or the buying your house because they can't. So they're much more in the here and now and um, and leading the way, frankly, and really quite um, proactively putting in the stops and the pauses and the, uh, am I even enjoying this? And the pandemic did enough rupturing of work culture to get over this weirdy presenteeism. You know, this is the way we do things around here. I think sadly in certain particularly public sector jobs where you have to be there that is still really tough but I do think that the more people start to lead with their differences and are clearer on their needs the game changes so I introduced this episode sharing my own diagnosis you have shared so generously so much of how things have been for you and we're two different people. And so while I've talked here about how much has resonated, I'm aware of a risk in doing that publicly. The two of us having this conversation, me saying, oh my gosh, so much resonates. There's a risk of that feeding a notion that any two ADHDers are the same. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned in your letter about problematic stereotypes. Mm. Um, so I've got a curiosity about the risks of grouping people together under a label and any advice you have for leaders around that. If you're a leader and you're not neurodivergent or you don't know that you are and you're learning about this stuff uh, or you're learning about any kind of difference, actually, I think the most important thing is to stay in curiosity, which, again, is so hard if you're paid to know. Yeah. So, again, I'm kind of speaking to your NHSs and your uh, schools here, both of which we're paid to know. We're experts. And experts can get really in the way of curiosity. But holding the nuance of difference doesn't mean that you go under. It means that you learn from and build your humanity and hear your boundaries and stay in the room. I think one of the big things I try and get uh, when I when I have leaders on my trainings um, and coaches on my trainings is that, is that they really hear when they're going into sort of drama or overwhelm because we all do. There's a point, isn't there, in your head where you go, oh "My God, I, I can't even remember half this stuff." You know, this is ridiculous. How am I, and, and and this whole right and wrong. What if I get it wrong? I mean, I, and this is the other thing about curiosity, and again, tr- problematic in places where we're paid to know. We have to normalize mistake making and stop calling it mistake making. I think we need to call it experimenting mm-hmm. because this whole, you know, fail and you're cancelled um, is really unhelpful. We, we have to own it and then move and move on. Oh, my goodness. I tell you, what, I haven't learned that from my leadership days. I'm learning it through parenting mm-hmm. every single day. <laughs> someone's listening to this and has listened to your letter, listened to this conversation and is wondering, is this me? Mm -hmm. What would you say to them? 
I think there's a lot of people who've just been ignoring their needs. They've they've taught been taught to ignore their needs. Um, a lot of overwhelmed people. Um, if you do really think that the speedy brain and the <laughs> hurtling through life thing really is you, and there's you know there's a lot of other things I could have said very specifically about ADHD, but I was trying sure. to I was trying to sort of make it more wide, really. I think the most important thing is to find some literature that is authored by people who have it. <laughs> I think there's a lot of fear around labels. Mm. Um, my parents' generation definitely have it. But that, but I, I think that's an old trope, you know. it's uh, Things are changing, really, really changing. Mm. So much wisdom, Katie. Thank you. <laughs> Knowing that what you've talked about today is very generously about is you've talked to everyone. You haven't just talked to those of us who either have or think we might have something going on um, neurodivergence wise. You've talked to us all. So any resource recommendations that you would close with? Anything that you would say, watch this or listen to that or read this? Yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to do my like top four, maybe. So number one, I would say Dare to Lead, Brene Brown, an amazing book. Queen Brene. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Queen Brene. And uh, who else would I say? Oh, Representation Matters for Educators. Um, I've got a little contribution in there, but that's Aisha Thomas's book. Absolutely amazing. ADHD 2.0 for um, anyone thinking about ADHD. If anyone thinks it's neurodiversity in general and is a woman, I would say divergent minds. I think if you're a systems thinker, I still have a soft spot for the whole Lencioni work. Oh, um, yeah. I just just love his work. Um, the Advantage, I think yes. that's yeah. my favorite one. Yeah. I got really excited about that and I still go back to it now and I've used it in partnerships with people. Katie, thank you so much for your generosity and vulnerability and wisdom today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. So before we go, a reminder, I'm passionate about the fact that hearing these wonderful insights, inspiration, approaches and experiences from our guests is an important and rich resource. And I'm equally passionate that in sharing them, it's important to equip you if you need it with a sense of how to do these things, you know, some ways to get there. So our sister podcast, Towards Leadership, is where we will chew over some of what we've heard in some more detail and where you'll find more resources in our read, watch and listen to sections, as well as some tools, techniques, reflective exercises and thinking to support and challenge you as a leader. Our intention is that this is useful to you, whether you've been in the C-suite for many years or you're just starting out on your career with an eye on your future as a leader. And for obvious reasons, this next episode will have a focus on ADHD. If you're listening for the first time to Leadership Letters and you want to go back and hear some previous episodes, please do just hit follow wherever you're listening to this podcast. And however long you've been listening for, if you're finding it useful, please do let us know and share it. If you'd like to recommend a guest or you'd like to write your own leadership letter and come and talk all things leadership through with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch at thecausewaycoaching.com. This is the Leadership Letters podcast, a reflection on all things leadership. See you soon. <laughs>